0: From the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, this is The Steady Stater, a podcast dedicated to discussing limits to growth in the steady state economy.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brian Check, and our guest today is Tom Horton. We'll be discussing barriers to the steady state economy in the media. Tom is the perfect guest for this topic for at least two reasons. First, he's been a member of the media for a long time. He covered environmental issues for the Baltimore Sun from 1974 until 2006, and he's written for National Geographic, Rolling Stone, and the New York Times. These days he writes regularly for the Chesapeake Bay Magazine. The other reason Tom is such a great guest here is, he's one of those rare journalists who has consistently tied our environmental problems back to the root cause, namely economic growth. Tom Horton, welcome to The Steady Stater.
0: Thanks Brian, good to be here.
1: Well Tom, you've been one of the leading reporters on Chesapeake Bay issues for decades. Our paths have crossed a number of times, and I know that Chesapeake Bay is near and dear to your heart. In fact, you live right out in the middle of that beautiful Delmarva Peninsula, don't you?
0: Yeah, you know, I recall Brian once when I was too young to know better calling Herman Daly up, and I I said, uh, Herman, you write about all these cosmic global things. What do I tell the local county planning board about growth? And he paused and said, oh, well, that, that's hard.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Well, you and I talked recently about the barriers to steady-state economics in the media, and one thing you told me was a huge surprise. You thought neither the ownership nor the editorial management of the media was really such a barrier. Yet, if you read a book like Dark Money, you discover just how long are the pro-growth tentacles of the Koch brothers network. Koch brothers and others, we might say. How would we even know if a journalist was gagged?
0: Well actually I think uh, if 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 I had been gagged on something and I had come to know you as a source I, w- I would tell you I would cry on your shoulder I, w- I would tell you that so you would know if you knew the journalist but you know, there's there's overt gagging, which never happened to me. The Baltimore Sun had a lot of integrity, and it wasn't the only newspaper that had a lot of integrity. I think most of them did, but you know, there's another form of gagging. Our owners, our publishers, most of our editors were very much of the growth is good, and the more of it, the better uh, uh, mentality. and. Well that didn't literally stop me as a reporter or a columnist from writing about uh, ecological economics about steady state. It certainly stopped me from making it a big part of my beat. uh, We talked about this uh, earlier, Brian, Uh, I can write about darn near anything I want, but if there's no one out there, no environmental group, no think tank, no politician, who is responding, who is uh, acting on these things, I can only write so much about it before I become a crank. You know, it's, oh, there goes Horton again. Nobody else in the world seems to care about that, but he seems to write about it every other column. I think I'm going to look for another columnist. So that's, that's a type of gagging that isn't overt, but uh, I I think that certainly did apply to me and everyone else. You know, growth is good, that's what our editorial pages usually said. Uh, And they Mm -hmm. never really questioned whether there should be a limit or an end to that growth. So that in itself constrains you quite a bit.
1: Yeah. Well, that phenomenon of, let's call it, crankhood, that's really important, I think. That resonates with me, and and I'd like to explore the nuances of that particular problem over the course of the next few questions. First, I mean, would you have any sense of how often or how frequently a journalist can write on such a topic without entering into crankhood?
0: You know, it, it depends on the topic, but, you know... I write uh, I've written columns weekly and monthly I mean I don't think steady state is something when I was writing a weekly column I could have done more than a maybe three four five six a year whereas I thought it was important enough maybe I should do 20 a year but but it's it's just not on the agenda the Sierra Club isn't pushing it Audubon isn't pushing it uh, NRDC, uh, the, 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 the Brookings Foundation, whoever, uh, so that I can make it more of an issue. If it's just me saying it over and over again or quoting the same person over and over again, it, it verges on you know, being a, being a crank. And, and I, I don't mind being that a little bit. I, I really don't care because I think it's important to, to talk about root causes. We don't do that nearly enough.
1: Now what about not for the lone journalist, but for an outlet such as our Steady State Herald at Cassie, our, you know, our blog? We try to make every one of our weekly articles explicitly connected to limits to growth, problems caused by growth, and the Steady State economy as the sustainable alternative. Yet I've often thought our biggest challenge is seeming too redundant and uh, falling off into that crankhood. On the other hand, if we got too general and just started writing about the problems of the world, we'd lose that distinctive focus that sets us apart and gets us some readership. I guess it's a balancing act, Tom, but you got any tips for the management of a blog like ours?
0: You know, there's no easy answers because I've been at this since 1972. I started at the Sun two years after the first Earth Day and began environmental coverage in 74. So I've been at it a while. I mean, you have to be creative. You have to be persistent. Uh, One of the things I have observed, again, on Chesapeake Bay, but it has wider implications, is that I've seen scientists do work on a problem, and it can be any number of problems, year after year after year, and no one listens, but they do the work, and then a window opens. Some crisis happens, uh, some report comes out, something gets people's attention, and all of a sudden, everybody wants to talk to that scientist, and you probably have about three or four months that you can push That work you've been doing for years through into some kind of legislation and it's like making sausage you don't really want to see it but it's the way things happen and uh, so uh, I guess partly keep that in mind you 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 do what you do and windows will open if only briefly and you have to be ready for that you can't tell what's going to open that window Uh, climate change might open the window for talking about steady state, for example.
1: So, I mean, the other problem is, or another problem is, journalists walk a fine line, don't they? I mean, you're, you're supposed to remain unbiased and fairly apolitical, at least in your writing, yet an article about, let's say, biodiversity loss or climate change, like you say, or, or limits to growth would be oozing with policy implications. Yet well, we see we see biodiversity and climate covered copiously. So is there some particularly taboo element of steady-state economics that puts it beyond the pale for broadcast journalism?
0: I don't think it's so much a taboo. Is that no one with much of a voice is making it an issue? Uh, you know, people sometimes say on. This whole issue of grow or die, grow, 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 population growth, the whole ball of white, where do we start? And I say, well, that's easy. We we start by agreeing it's something we need to talk about. Unfortunately, that's where we're at. We we need to declare it is an important issue. We need to declare, unless we talk about this more seriously, all of the things we're doing aren't going to cut it, aren't going to work.
1: What about the misconception that a steady state economy is a Marxist plot? Do you think we have editors in the media that fear a backlash, not only from pro-growthers, but from free market capitalist ideologues?
0: You can get that. I have, uh, I don't want to mention names here, but I have had some ideas rejected by some publications when I was writing about this because they were nonprofits and their donors, while they were good-hearted liberal environmentalists, were also capitalists, and they worried about turning off their donors. I wouldn't say that's been a big problem, but it's out there. Mm. So, yep, that, that can be a factor.
1: Yeah. You know, pretty soon I'd like to break it down, economic growth, that is, into population and consumption growth, and talk with you about I guess we might call it comparative editorial politics. But first, we need to take a short non commercial break with Rick Tibbetts.
0: Hi there. We hope you're enjoying the show. Want to stay up to date on what's happening in the steady state community? Our blog, The Steady State Herald, is the premier outlet for relevant, timely, and fully informed discussion on steady state economics. We publish new articles every week featuring analysis of topics ranging from economic theory to politics and governance. You can find this and a variety of other informational resources on our website, steadystate.org. Simply pan over to the track tab and click Steady State Herald in the drop-down menu. Now, back to the show.
1: All right now, Tom, let's deal with the two arms of the 800-pound gorilla, population and per capita consumption. You know, I've been thinking about that wasteland of Crankhood that we talked about before the break, and it strikes me that of the two, population and per capita consumption, one of them is always closer to the doorway into Crankhood. Does that resonate with you?
0: Yeah, I would I would say, well, you know, when I started uh, in the early 70s, Brian, and before I started in the 60s, uh, everybody was talking about population. You know, uh, Silent Spring wasn't the best seller in the 60s. It was the population bomb by Ehrlich. Uh, So, uh, it's almost like that was a subject that we could talk about uh, and now it's very hard to talk about. That has something to do with the immigration, which is a large component of U.S. population growth. That was a Minefield enough before Donald Trump made it. Uh, I don't know what World War Three uh, toxicity. So uh, that that complicates it.
1: Yes, it's not what you want to lead with, and that's a that's a political problem. But I mean, outside of a few nuts that hang on to the old Julian Simon esque fantasy of perpetual population growth, everyone gets it that we can't have a gazillion people on the planet. Tom, I wanna ask you, isn't it different with GDP growth because you have to do at least a few, you've got a few layers to report on.
0: Yeah, GDP is a good one. I uh, spent almost three months uh, covering the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 88, 89 for Rolling Stone. I spent three months up there in Alaska, and I remember looking at GDP several months later, and there was a spike in it, and I realized that spike in GDP, which would register as good with most people, was because of all the money Exxon spent trying to clean up its mess in Alaska. And I thought, what the hell? You know, uh, that didn't look like a good thing from three months up there, looking at oiled otters and seabirds and the loss of livelihoods. But uh, yeah, so uh, plenty to talk about there that that needn't be linked to population.
1: Ultimately, though, it does have to link the population. Hmm. Yeah, kind of the strategy we have taken is you take on the one thing, GDP growth, and then when people start getting serious about that analysis, well, then, you know, it plops out of the bag that population and consumption are the two big components. But uh, going back to the population issue for a bit here, Remember when, well, you mentioned the conference that you organized in in Frederick, Maryland. I think it was called, yeah, Growth and the Future of the Chesapeake Bay. There was a big tiff there, as I recall, because you had invited a couple of speakers on population issues, and it turned out the Southern Poverty Law Center had them pegged for receiving money from somebody that they thought was a racist. So the question here is, do you think many journalists would cover an incident like that and if so would that even be a good thing
0: that was that was one of those times that I uh, I realized the difference in writing and working for a tiny nonprofit like the Bay Journal versus when I used to work at the relatively big and uh, deep pocketed Baltimore Sun uh, some of the Immigration folks who objected to a couple of my speakers had uh, pipelines to the White House. Uh, we certainly didn't. Uh, bottom line, they were able fairly credibly to threaten the Bay Journal's funding. So we couldn't go after them. If I'd been at the Baltimore Sun or the Washington Post or the New York Times, I'd have been able to say, screw you and then full speed ahead. But mm-hmm. I couldn't risk the future of our little newspaper on something like that because we get some funding from EPA uh, and they might have succeeded in cutting it off. Uh, you know, we, we did the same thing anyway. We had to disinvite a couple speakers. That was a case where we had to knuckle under because we weren't big enough to uh, to fight those guys. Hmm. How about the uh, how
1: do you think the fairly well burgeoning degrowth movement in Europe will affect the media in the USA?
0: Well, see, I, I you, you're more up to date on the or degrowth than I am, but I actually think I wish we had something like degrowth here, because my understanding is a lot of degrowth, uh, at least until recently, has taken place within academia, and I think that's probably where we should be growing this, because you can't just go to an elected official and say, "Come out tomorrow," or when you run for re-election against growth. Uh, I mean, they're going down, and uh, they spend so much time defending themselves and explaining. you got to grow that stuff and bubble it up through academia to think tanks to conferences to educating politicians and maybe journalists.
1: All right. Now winding down here a bit, Mm -hmm. what's next on your plate, Tom?
0: Oh, you know, I I continue to write my monthly column uh, for the Bay Journal, and I will probably try to keep Finding reasons to write about growth and steady state, and it'll probably be maybe one or two of my uh, uh, 12 monthly columns if I'm, I'm doing good. Uh, uh, but you know, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm winding down a little bit too. I'll, I'll be 76 in June, uh, uh, so uh, so I I don't I don't have any grand plans. But but, uh, to to ride my bike uh, maybe a couple thousand miles this summer, that's that's grand enough for me.
1: Well, Tom, best of luck with all the above, and thanks for spending some time with us today.
0: Well, thanks for paying attention to, I I think it's, I, I think we cannot solve our environmental problems if we don't solve our economic problems. It's just as simple as that.
1: Well folks, that about wraps her up. We've been talking with Tom Horton, the longtime journalist best known for his expertise on the spectacular Chesapeake Bay. Tom's given us some real food for thought. What's preventing journalists from covering limits to growth and the steady state economy as the sustainable alternative? The barriers might not be as nefarious as we thought, It might just be the fear of crankhood that prevents a high frequency of such coverage. For one thing, we'll never know about the journalists who've been gagged from writing or reporting on limits to growth. That's just the nature of the gag order. More on that in the months to come. I'm Brian Check, and you've been listening to the Steady Stater Podcast. See you next time.